So the title of today's message is Acts of Worship, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, if you want to turn there in your Bible. This week we had some incredible news for once coming out of Washington. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news and what's been going on, but there was a Middle East peace treaty signed this week. And what makes this so remarkable is that since Israel became a nation back in 1948, there has only been two uh, peace agreements since then, and they both weren't even together. They were several years apart. They came after Israel had to fight a war for her independence, or or fight a war, excuse me, not for her independence, but to stay a state because they were attacked by uh, various Arab nations around them. And this week we saw two different nations at the same time with a promise of more coming um, coming to peace with Israel, and those two nations were the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. If you know your geography, the United Arab Emirates sits right at that strait, the beginning of the Strait of Hormala, or Hormuz, I believe it says, uh, it is, and that controls the, fl- the flow of the world's oil. You got Iran on one side, and um, is it Omar and the United Arab Emirates right there, and that controls that strait. So the fact that you have a nation that has aligned itself with Israel and is, in control, is partly in control of that strait, that is very, very significant. And there's a promise that there's going to be even more. So some people are starting to um, wonder, you know, if Yemen and Omar, I think it's Omar, or Omen, Omen, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> I didn't write this down. Um, I'm going off my brain here, which is never a good idea. Um, and Omen and Yemen and Saudi Arabia may be following the lead of the UAE and Bahrain in doing this, and that'll put a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia to, to come and put a lot of pressure on Iraq to come, and eventually maybe even Iran, and we could see peace in the Middle East. Of course, being biblical Christians, we know that's probably not going to last very long, and because um, we know from Ezekiel 38 that Um, those nations will eventually turn on Israel, but it is still a pretty significant um, occurrence in our lifetime. As I was listening to all the speeches on the way, I was driving to Marshfield on Tuesday, and I was listening to all the speeches and all the politicians saying how great this was and everything. They said as part of the deal that these countries would now have access to the Temple Mount, and in particular, the Al-Aska Mosque. Anybody seen pictures of Jerusalem? You see that big golden thing on top of the, on top of the uh, Temple Mount? A lot of people think that's a Jewish temple. It's not. It's actually the third holiest site in all of Islam. It's the site where they believe that Muhammad ascended to heaven. So that is a very, very important site to um, a person who, who follows Islam. And... They believe, as, as part of their duty, that they are to go there at least once in their life to, to worship at that mosque. And now this peace treaty opens, itself, opens that, that up to them, that they can be able to go there and worship because they'll be able to enter Israel. So it's a pretty significant um, thing for your average Muslim. And as I was driving over to Marshfield this week, I was just thinking... It's just interesting how so many people worship God in different ways. We, of course, believe we have the true way here in Christianity, but there are still a lot of different faith systems in the world that are very different from ours. 
For example, Muslims have their duties and obligations, like going to the pilgrimages. They go to Mecca, they go to Medina, they go to this mosque. They, they have to do certain things before they die in order to maybe get into heaven. That's what they believe. If you're a Buddhist, you believe that you do everything you have to do, no matter how it affects other people. It's all about you and all about you emptying yourself so that you can achieve nirvana or this divine essence. If you're a Hindu, you're going to follow the principles of whatever hundred million deities there are in their pantheon of gods that they worshipped. Imagine having a choice of a hundred million gods. Let's see. <laughs> Dartboard? I have no idea how they, how they pick which one that they want to follow. But essentially, Hinduism believes that you be a good person, you get your good karma, and if you do that, you can be reincarnated into the next life as a better creature or a human and a better cast of, of, uh, in their culture. So you might be a servant or lower caste here. Next time, if you're a decent person, you get to be in the upper caste. But, and even within Christianity, you know, you're thinking of all these other false religions. You know, well, they're a bunch of pagans. What do they know? But even in Christianity, we have a lot of different ways of worshiping, don't we? you're Catholic, you're going to worship this way. If you're Lutheran, you're going to worship this way. Assembly of God thinks everybody is crazy. You're supposed to worship like this. So we all have our own um, thoughts and ways of worshiping. And most of us in this church probably came from one of a, a faith tradition that is a little bit different. But God had a very simple plan of how we should worship. God just breaks this down in the Bible and makes it very easy for us and that is we are to worship in a way that befits the way that he made us you know we all exist inside these bodies some of us are short some of us are tall some of us are fat some of us are thin so some of us um focus way too much some of us had to spend hours this morning to get ready to come to church some of us got out of the shower went like this and said yeah okay you know we, we, we go through all this time of, of making this outer body look good uh, and don't consider that we're actually a spiritual creature existing in a physical body. We forget that. God made us in His image. He made us in His spiritual image. If you don't get anything out of this morning's message, just remember that. Because most of the conflict that goes on in your life is because of a conflict that exists between this physical body and the spiritual nature that you really are. And we're going to look at that in the morning, but I just want, or look at that in a moment, but I just wanted to point out um, where we are in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 12, and one of the big ideas when you study the book of Romans is that there's a transition of thought between Romans chapter 11 and Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul has you in a classroom. He is teaching you deep, deep, deep theology. And he's going into the gospel truth. He's showing you exactly how the cross affects everyone in every part of our existence. And now starting in chapter 12, Paul is going to switch gears. He's going to leave the deep theological truths, and now he's going to start getting very, very practical and saying, if you believe all of what was said over here, this is how you should be living. So he's going from teaching to practical life, um, exp 
life experience. And he does this by addressing us how we really are, and that is as a spiritual being. So we're going to start off in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Father, for the words of Paul. We thank you, Father, for the teaching that we have heard up until this point. Now, Father, I ask, Lord, that you help us to take that teaching and make it work for us in a practical way so that we have a path to follow, a way of belief, and a way of showing people the power of the cross in our lives. And it starts out, Lord, with how and who we worship. Lord God, take this message, use it to change our hearts and minds into a people that reflect who you are. I ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Now it's noticeable or notable that Paul did not give us a list of things we need to do that makes us pleasing to God, but instead points us back to our very created nature and tells us that this is our starting point. So we begin with our spirit connecting with God's spirit. That leads us to living with spirit and in truth. Jesus said that. He broke it down for the woman at the well when she asked him which place she had to go to or, or how she was to worship God and, and how she was to, to make this, did she have to make this journey to Jerusalem and she wouldn't be allowed there anyway because she was a Samaritan and, and she starts going into all these details and Jesus just says, stop. I tell you, there is a time that is coming and it is indeed here now where people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That means our spirit connects with God's spirit. Paul is saying, first attend to your primary nature, your spirit. Allow your spirit to be exercised. Allow your spirit to grow. And then when all that is over, when, when you have totally giving yourself over to your spirit, and your spirit is connected with God's spirit, all those, those fleshly desires you have will be taken care of. But is it any wonder why the world tells us to do the exact opposite, doesn't it? You can't watch TV without seeing a commercial. Get fit. Get beautiful. Have this look. Wear this fashion, have this phone, have this smartwatch, make sure you drive this car, eat at this restaurant. Whatever it is, the world is always trying to point you to the physical, usually at the expense of your spiritual. Or see something that is going on right now in our country, that you better support this cause, no matter how harmful it might be to the nation so that you can be admired by everyone else. You can be part of that in crowd. Then you're going to find fulfillment. 
That's how the natural person is being conditioned to think. Not to be under control of the Holy Spirit. They want you, the world, the system wants you to stay in the material world so you can't even see or feel or experience the spiritual world. And what that does is it makes a person selfish. It's only about them. It's only about them. It's only about their wants, their desires, their need to feel fulfilled. Is it any wonder why Jesus said you must be born again? You must receive that new nature, a new mind and a new heart. And that's why Paul tells us here, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what does that look like for the life of the believer? How do we, how do we apply that in a practical way? Well, Paul spends the entire rest of chapter 12 giving us the application of this truth and, and how that is going to look in our lives. And the first application and way to worship God in the Spirit is this. In verse 3 it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I was told once, <laughs> I guess I have a little bit of a pride and ego problem, but way early in my, in my life, somebody sat me down and said, one of the biggest favors you can do for yourself is learn humility. And I was offended by that because I was much more humble than that person. guess you guys didn't get that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you this right now, it's going to be one of the hardest things that you do in life, but it is also the most foundational for the Christian. And since this is so important, let me put it in its proper perspective. The world would teach us that a humble person just lets everybody walk all over them all the time. And when we say that, we think, man, I don't want to be somebody's doormat. I don't want to be somebody's punching bag. I don't want to be that person who's always getting picked on. But that's not what the Christian version of humility is really about. It's not. Who's our example? Jesus, right? Did Jesus let himself be a doormat when he lived on this earth? You look at the life of Jesus until he went to the cross. He never let people walk all over him. He responded to his critics pretty forcefully. I think whipping people is a pretty, pretty forceful thing. Flipping tables, yelling, calling people whitewashed tombs. That's, that's a pretty good insult. And he did, so, he did all this without apology, but he also did it in love. He did it because he was more interested in truth being popular. He is more interested in people coming into a saving relationship with God by pointing out where they were going and how they were being. He was concerned about that other person and it came out in such a way that might shock them at first, but it may also make them take a look inside and say, is that true? I've often, I've often heard, actually I think uh, 
One of my favorite pastors said this. He said, if somebody throws a rock at you, he goes, it's going to hurt. He goes, but then you should pick up that rock and look at it and see if there's any truth to what they just threw at you. Number one. Number two, what was the intent that they threw it? Was it because they were speaking the truth in love or just trying to hurt you? If they're trying to hurt you, toss it away, but look at that rock. Because sometimes there is some truth that might be able to help you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the Bible says. So, you know, keep that in mind when people try to, to do that to you. But Jesus was more interested in truth and being popular. And being popular is the trap that many people are in today. I think we have let the entertainment industry, the news media industry, the social media especially, make a generation that thinks they are deserving of admiration. They think they're deserving of fame, notoriety, and they will do whatever it takes that keeps them in that cool kids club, that woke bubble. And this generation, tragically, is existing in a mindset that is the complete opposite and antithesis of Jesus' example and teaching. Most people believe it's more important to be woke or popular than to stand for truth. That's not humility. That's pride. That's pride in wanting yourself to be admired. If you need to be admired, that's a form of worship that you're taking away from God. He is the only one that is deserving of that. And they will cloak it in fine-sounding arguments, but in the end, they're more worried about what people think of them than what that was in what is true. And that's why proper spiritual worship, it starts with humility. In order for us to have that kind of humility, we need to trust what God says is true. Another way of having humility is understanding these things. It's God's will, not mine. It's God's strength, not mine. It's God's spirit, hallelujah, not mine. It's even the gifts I'm using and not my own, my own skill. This last week, I saw this that we had two very sick patients at work who desperately needed to have IV access so we could treat their illness, and nobody could get IVs on them. They tried, resource nurse came down, the, the, everybody, anesthesia came down, nobody could get an IV on this person. And I came back from a transfer and they, and they said, you know, can you try? Can, can you try with your ultrasound? Because I'm one of the few people trained in ultrasound IVs there. Can you try with your ultrasound to find a vein? Because we got to get uh, medication into this person. And I looked at my ultrasound machine. I looked there. You can actually see what the veins look like. And there's three layers you can distinctly see. I saw one horrible looking layer which means that they had probably used IV drugs at one point in their life. And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking in my back of my head, there's no possible way I'm going to be able to get an IV in it. As soon as I touch it with a needle, it's going to blow. And so I just said, God, you're going to have to guide my hand because I'm not going to be able to get this, but I'm going to try. So I did, and I got it both times. 
And I came out and everybody was like, oh, John's so great. John's I was like, hey, it wasn't me. I prayed and God did it. <laughs> and that's the truth. I was like, I, I, it was not me at all. And I just use this, this kind of weird example to say if we always start with God's glory being the source of our actions, we'll always be worshiping Him in spirit. If I had gone in there wanting to, people to say, oh, John is great, I guarantee I would have missed both of them. But I went in there saying, God, it's only going to be by you that this is done. And it was done for his glory. And it gave me an opportunity to point people to God. The second way toward worshiping in spirit is to know your role. In verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let it use it in, in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. One of the things that causes the most fights in churches that I've seen in, in my Christian life is people that don't understand exactly the gifting and the role that God has given them to serve in this time. God is an awesome God. He's a very orderly God. He has given each one of us a role. He has given each one of us a gift that we are to bring into the body for the good of the body or the local church. Some people have more gifts. Some people have less gifts. Some people have obvious gifts. Some people have gifts that nobody will ever see, but they use them faithfully behind the scenes. Some people are good at one thing, really good at one thing. Some people are good at a whole number of things. Our church is really blessed. We have a couple of Swiss Army Knife people here that are good at fixing anything. And that person is, and those people are huge blessings to our body. Paul gives us an example to help us wrap our heads around this truth. He gives the example of prophesying. Prophesying is simply speaking the mind of God. There are two different kinds of prophesying. A lot of times we think about prophesying, we think about somebody who is predicting the future. That's called a foretelling prophecy. That does happen. I have had people stand up in church and tell us what was going to happen to somebody or what was going to happen in the very near future. That does happen even in the modern church. More often, though, those prophecies are foretelling prophecies. Foretelling prophecy is hearing God speaking to a situation or a person who needs to hear from God. I've heard foretelling prophecies change the direction of a church. I've heard foretelling prophecies directly confront sin in a particular person, not in a public way, but maybe at an altar call. Where a person was a where a person under the influence of the Holy Spirit was saying, God wants you to stop doing this right now. 
And they had no idea that that person was doing it, but God spoke through them and was able to bring correction in that situation. In fact, you could arguably be said that if a pastor is being led by the Holy Spirit, anytime they stand up and preach a sermon, it's a form of forth-telling prophecy because you're preaching the will of God for that situation. Serving is another gifting. Now, a servant lives to simply serve others. This is how they find fulfillment. This is, this is how what they wake up to do every morning is how can I help somebody else? We saw this actually this last week when several people helped paint the parsonage and do things around there. It looks like a new house now. Thank you to everybody, who again, who was, who was part of that. Teaching is another gift that we see in the body. And in some ways, that includes preaching and sermons. A lot of people don't think a lot goes into that, but it's been said, and it's pretty true, actually, that on an average of, for every five minutes of a sermon, it takes about an hour of preparation. So for a 30-minute sermon, it's about six to eight hours worth of study, preparation, and editing, not counting multimedia stuff that we put together to show you up on the screen there. Sunday school Wednesday night takes about another one to two hours to prepare. So there's a lot behind the scenes that, that most people see that, that teachers have to do to be able to bring the Word of God in a way that you're going to understand and, and, and grow from. Encouraging is another gift that we see in the body, helping people keep their eyes on Christ. They are the exhorters among us. These are the people that help keep us grounded in the faith, help us keep our eyes on God. This isn't a drill sergeant that just barks orders at people. This is a person who comes alongside you and says, I see you may be having some difficulty right now. Let me put my arm around you and walk with you for a little while through whatever you're going through right now and get you to where you need to be with Jesus Christ. Another gift is giving. Some people, God blesses them with finances, property, and a mind that is very financially astute. Not only can they help support the work of the church, but they can also give advice to the church and in investing in money management, expenses, administration. And they can do this not only to the church body, but even to individuals. We had several people in our past that, that would sit us down and help us to learn how to budget, help us to learn how to control spending, help us to learn how to save. Just different people who are very, very good at this. They didn't give us a dime, but they sat down and gave us their time and helped us learn to become better uh, stewards of our finances. Leadership is an even rarer gift. I never really understood what leadership was until I got in the military. I had been in the military for a while, worked my way up, Private 1, Private 2, PFC, Specialist, corporal, I was corporal for a little while. Never, it's kind of an NCO, but not really. And I'd been in a while, and now I was promoted, or getting ready to be promoted to E5, buck sergeant, be the first sergeant rank. I went to all the schools, completed my education, got a great evaluation on my last, NC, or my last uh, um, yearly evaluation. So they set a date, I went and I pulled out my dress uniform, polished the brass, made sure my shoes were shined and medals were all in the right, right order and everything looked great. 
drove up to the brigade headquarters for the interview. So it's a it's a it's a panel. You have people like sitting like would be like right here in the front row, and they all get to ask you questions. And they ask the typical questions. They give you a book for this, by the way. You're supposed to read the book. They have all the questions in there that they can ask you, and they ask you questions like, "What's the range of an M16A1 rifle? What are the three general orders of a sentry? What's the correct command to order a formation to reverse direction, and which foot do you call it on?" Just different military questions like that. Finally, it was a brigade command sergeant major's turn to ask me a question. And he was, he was the last one to ask. And he asked me, what will you do with this rank? I'm like, that's not in the book. That wasn't a study question. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, uh, uh, <laughs> um, well, uh, uh, sergeant major, I, um, I would, uh, 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 he just held up his hand. He, he's like, I don't, I don't expect an answer. He goes, but I just want you to have this in the back of your mind, what you're going to do with this rank. He goes, when you become a sergeant, even different from being a corporal, when you become a sergeant, you are now among the non-commissioned officers. That means you are now in command of men and women. He said, as a sergeant, particularly in a combat arms branch that you are in right now, you may have to order these men or women to their death you may have to give them a direct order that will most likely get them killed in order to accomplish your mission. That's a very, very heavy burden for you to bear. And if you ever have to give that order, it will stay with you the rest of your life. He goes, so I want you to consider what you're going to do with this rank and what kind of sergeant you're going to be. Leadership in a church is really no different. Whether you're a pastor, a board member, worship leader, usher, cleaner, you're taking responsibility for the lives of others. You're taking responsibility for the completion of the mission that Christ has given us and taking responsibility for the spiritual growth of everyone around you. Even being a church member is taking upon yourself a position of leadership. So I would tell you this morning, do that with all diligence. Remembering that you will have to give an account to the one who saved us. Finally, Paul tells us that showing mercy is one of the ways we worship in spirit and in truth. And it's one of the hardest ones for us, most of us to do, especially when we've been wrong. I've heard it said that when we mess up, we want mercy, don't we? We want mercy who are, from people who are in a position to judge us. When people do evil against us, we want immediate and harsh justice. I mentioned during Sunday school that I was assaulted at work um, last, not last Friday, the Friday before. It was relatively minor, but if you shove, punch, swing at, run into whatever a, um, a paramedic or a medical worker working in a hospital, it's a class H felony. And so this person did that. It was minor. It wasn't anything. I, obviously, I'm standing here with no bruises or black eyes. So it wasn't anything really bad. 
But now I was in a position where, I had, where my boss is forcing me to press charges because they don't want it out in the community. You can take swings at us. And so I, I did that. But my intention, though, isn't to see him go to jail for three to five years. It's to see him actually get help that he needs. And that is my prayer behind it. It's what I told the DA this week when they called me. I want him to get mercy, but I also want him to get help. And a person who is spiritually minded toward mercy helps those of us who might be more justice-focused to remember that we are here today because even though we committed high crimes and treasons against God Almighty, He showed us mercy. We should likewise do that when people wrong us. And that's how we help each other worship God in spirit. Paul ends this chapter with an exhortation that closely resembles Jesus' words in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 8, when he says that love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. (coughs) If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Let me say that again. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. That's what it means to be that living sacrifice that is more concerned about the others around us than we are about our own personal well-being. And that's a high mark to live up to, isn't it? But I think it's also where God is calling His church in these last days to be those true reflections of Jesus Christ.